Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as we record on November 10th, full election results are not in. But we know a few things about corporate media election coverage, a big one being the over-reliance on predictive polling and expert guessing, as opposed, and really they do seem to be opposed, to time spent listening to a wide range of people about what concerns them the uplifting of those concerns, and then an interrogation of the power players, all of them, including the no-comment crowd, about how those concerns are being addressed. And if they aren't, why not? One such concern right now could have been the affordable housing crisis. As Eric Horowitz noted at FAIR.org, a lot of elite media coverage of housing problems has focused on the idea that landlords of supposedly modest means are being squeezed, or that people living without homes pose a threat to the lives and property of housed citizens, as well as to the careers of politicians who dare to defend them. Besides, you know, dragging down neighborhood aesthetics. But new views are needed not only about the impacts of the affordable housing crisis, but also about its causes. It's not just capitalism run amok, because that doesn't happen without government involvement. We'll talk with longtime affordable housing advocate Gene Slater, founder and chair at CSG Advisors. Also on the show, media continue to toss off the term inflation as the reason for higher prices, as if in hopes that folks will stop their brains right there and blame an abstract entity. We'll have a quick listen back to our February conversation with Rakeen Maboud of Groundwork Collaborative, when media were working hard to tell the public that supply chain disruptions dropped from the sky like rain, rather than being connected to decades of conscious policy decision-making. Combined corporate and government choices and how they affect the rest of us, this week on Counterspin. Brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Home ownership is a key ingredient in what is still called the American dream. Beyond the meaningful symbolism of having one's own patch, home ownership is instrumental in wealth creation, the difference between living paycheck to paycheck and being able to think about the future. It's societally important, historically important, who is encouraged and enabled and facilitated in their ability to buy a home and who is shut out. This is why many people are looking with worry at the phenomenon of institutional investors, Wall Street, gobbling up a larger and larger percentage of homes, and particularly entry-level homes, the very ones first home buyers would be looking at as affordable. What's the impact of this in the neighborhood and in the wider world? Gene Slater has worked on issues of affordable housing for many years. He's chairman and founder of CSG Advisors. He joins us now by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome to Counterspin, Gene Slater. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, this is something new, right? Uh, Institutional investors haven't traditionally looked at single-family homes as, like, 
you know, pork bellies to add to the portfolio. So why are we seeing this now? Well, I think this started, and you're right. I mean, traditionally, there have been many tens of millions of ma and pa small landlords. But the idea of Wall Street with virtually unlimited access to cash buying up single-family homes is a recent phenomenon. It started in some way, you know, in 2010, after the financial crisis, in part encouraged by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who financed some of these entities to buy up homes. And then it remained and sort of fell back and was at a modest level. And in the last several years, toward the end of the pandemic and over the last couple of years, it's really mushroomed significantly. And I think that's for two reasons. One, from the Wall Street point of view, and I'm talking about REITs, particularly general partnerships, they had raised tremendous amounts of capital before the pandemic Mm -hmm. to invest in real estate. And suddenly in the pandemic, one wasn't going to invest in shopping centers or retail or in office buildings. So a lot of that got focused on either just buying normal rental properties, you know, uh, standard apartment buildings, but also got focused on buying single-family homes because I saw single-family homes going up, becoming less affordable, and if they could buy, and their focus was in buying in less expensive neighborhoods and less expensive, more affordable parts of the country. And so they saw this as an opportunity to make long-term gains and to push up rents. And they did algorithms showing we could add rent charges for this. Unlike one polyamorous, they could basically create standardized ways of doing this. So they've seen this as a big opportunity. And the more inflation is heated up, the more they're now pitching this to their investors as this is a perfect hedge against inflation. So I think that's what's been driving this. Uh, It just sounds like a bad thing. In your very useful September piece for Housing Wire, co-written with Barry Zegas, you also point out, and you've just kind of hinted towards it, that these institutional purchases are highly concentrated in areas with minority families, with people of color. And so with this country's history of redlining and discriminatory government subsidies, we spoke with Richard Rothstein about this years ago, this has also huge, really, racial ramifications as well, yeah? Yeah. So, in fact, uh, part of the way I approach this problem is I just written a book last year, Freedom to Discriminate, on how the realtors conspired to segregate housing and divide the country. And as I've been talking about that in different places, this issue has come up in those discussions in places I didn't expect talking about this in Greensboro, North Carolina. And basically turned a community meeting about gentrification in East Greensboro and out-of-town investors buying homes. So it's happening there. It's happening virtually everywhere. It's not only in minority areas. It's not necessarily deliberately targeted, but it's targeted buying homes on average like 26% below the statewide average. So that means a focus on startup homes, on modest homes, many of which have been in minority. So it's having an outsized impact. There's an excellent Federal Reserve Bank Minneapolis study mapping where these corporate landlords are buying, and you can see tremendous overlap with areas where minorities live or would normally buy. Well, you also note, and you just 
tilted towards this, but it might need spelling out. With okay. fewer families able to buy homes, those people stay renting. Yes. And so landlords can then push up rents as well. It's kind of a self-feeding sort of cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So those people remain renters, and they're at the top end of the rental market. So it allows landlords to push up rents in general. And these corporate landlords are pace setting. And very explicitly, they're deciding, well, the median income of our tenants is this, we can push to a higher percentage of disposable income. That's what's happening. And the impact of reducing the number of homes that families can buy, this is what's really key. There's a record low levels of how many homes are available for purchase because people are staying in their homes longer because they're affected by being able to find another place. And with that record low inventory, and this happened especially during the pandemic, there's a pressure to push up prices. If you remove a lot of the starter homes, the modest cost homes, families can't even bid on them because they've been swooped up in all cash, no inspection offers that no family can compete with. They're bidding against each other for a smaller and smaller share of homes. That's pushing up prices and that's pushing up rents. Well, and then also ownership means power. So it matters in terms of policy that the market, this market is now one where Wall Street is invested and is going to be trying to call the shots. Who owns the homes in a neighborhood has an effect on policy in that neighborhood. And it's it's just another element that, that this is affecting, right? Yes, absolutely. And it also has an effect on neighborhood stability. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, single-family neighborhoods that you know, have been large in ownership or significantly ownership, to remove the opportunities for ownership makes those into less stable neighborhoods. It's a long-term effect on home ownership in the country, and it's really asking, who do we want to own America? Who do we want to own our neighborhoods? Well, there has been some critical and thoughtful media coverage. I can't list it all. I saw Alana Samuels in The Atlantic back in 2019. You know, there's there's been people illuminating this phenomenon and just saying, let's pay attention to this. But then I see this piece in the New York Times that's just so Timesian. <laughs> Is Wall Street really to blame for the affordable housing crisis? You know, quote, who's to blame? An increasingly popular answer among Democrats and even some Republicans is Wall Street, close quote. So now it's not about discrimination. It's not even about policy. It's just kind of partisan political football. And then it becomes a caricature of an argument rather than engagement with that argument. Is private equity the true villain or a scapegoat? The piece says, not everyone is convinced that Wall Street's entry into the single-family rental market is uniformly bad. It says, and then I'm going to close on this, it says, quote, but unalloyed evil or not, institutional investors simply don't have the market power to be driving the affordable housing crisis, close quote. I just find that so belittling and just kind of silly, you know, the idea that there's a problem and people are pointing fingers and you want to point fingers at the powerful people, but that makes you emotional, so leave it to us cooler heads. You know, I, I just I just wonder how you react to coverage like that that says Wall Street's not to blame. They might be a scapegoat. So I think this is an entirely 
false and wasteful use of time <laughs> and of the New York Times. So the issue isn't who's to blame for anything. There are so many factors that affect home prices. The Federal Reserve having kept interest rates low, zoning regulations for large lot single-family zoning. There's no limit to the number of causes one could try and explain this. The question is, what is the situation now? What's making it worse? Are federal taxpayers subsidizing that? So let me describe first a conversation we had with a leading economist who had worked for these hedge funds, who's sort of the key spokesperson on this issue. And her immediate response was, well, you're saying that hedge funds are solely to blame for what's happened to housing prices. And that's obviously false. And we say, we're not saying that. Nobody's saying that, or at least nobody you know, needs to say that at all. Rather, we're now in a situation where what was unaffordability of home ownership focused on a few metropolitan areas in terms of the median family income and median family price. Five years ago, that was like six or seven metropolitan areas in the country. That problem is now spread to like 90% of the metropolitan areas. We're seeing a huge change in the difficulty of buying homes in the country. Home prices nationally have gone up by 40% with interest rates going up. They add 45% to the monthly payment, to the cost of buying the same home. You add those two together, and we're now in a situation, an overall affordability crisis that affects virtually everyone who doesn't own a home, even the children of those who do. And to put this in context, during the pandemic, household wealth, home equity, increased by $6 trillion in this country. A, media, a typical family in San Jose, their household wealth went up by $250,000. In Montana, by $50,000, wherever. Where does that money come from? How do you suddenly wind up owning so much more? The answer is that's an obligation of all the people who don't buy homes as to what it will cost them in monthly payments to buy homes or to pay more rent. So this is now a widespread problem. So that's our situation. We're at a time, and part of what's driven that is the sales inventory of single-family homes is very low, and it's at historic low levels. People are staying in homes longer. It's harder to buy another home. Okay. So in that context, here you have one factor that's particularly affecting starter homes in a concentrated way in precisely the neighborhoods where families traditionally tried to buy their first home. There's been dramatic reduction in first-time home buyers in general over the last year and in families that are 25 to 34 years old. So it's pushing the age at which people can afford to buy much longer. That's the context. And sure, these corporate landlords, they only own a small share in total of all the millions of homes in the country, that doesn't matter. What matters is the impact on the inventory available for sale in a given market at a given time. There's where the, that's what drives prices. It doesn't matter if they only own 3% of all single institutional investors in Texas in 2021 bought 28% of the single family homes for sale. That was a broad definition of investment. And they're buying on average, as I said, 26% below the median sale price. Their concentration is precisely 
where people could otherwise buy homes. So the answer isn't who's to blame. The answer is, can some, is this a problem? And in this situation, American families are facing, and when you step back and you realize that American taxpayers are subsidizing these purchases, that's really the key. The question isn't who's to blame. The question is, should we as taxpayers, all of us, be paying more so hedge funds and Wall Street investors can buy up the single-family homes that families would normally be able to buy? That's the question. Is that what we want our tax dollars to be being used for? Because that's what's happening. Well, Democrat Representatives Ro Khanna, Katie Porter, and Mark Takano have now introduced the Stop Wall Street Landlords Act. Uh, what should we know about that? And are there other ways forward that you're thinking about? The approach that Barry and I outlined and that you know we've been talking on the Hill about and with the White House is a very narrow, limited, focused approach to try and gain as broad support as we can because we're up against, obviously, some of the strongest forces in the country who these buyers are. And there are other laws being proposed, the one you mentioned and others, that go much further that have 100% transfer taxes. I think all approaches can be good. The question is, what can be done that's realistic, that can't be challenged in the Supreme Court? So what we focused on is a simple, narrow change to the tax law. So that if you're a homeowner, you have a limit on the amount of interest you can deduct on your home, $750,000 of debt. But we propose to say, put a similar limit on these major funds and say, if you own more than 100 single-family homes, you don't get an interest deduction. That'll reduce the rate of return. And, and here's the key. We're making this revenue neutral by saying an investor who now owns such homes and they bought them, fine. You can recoup the deduction you'll lose even when you sell that home to a first-time home buyer in the next four years. So it has a double power. It's reducing the incentive to buy these homes, and it's using that same tax subsidy to encourage investors to make those homes available to first-time buyers. That's really the key. So it's changing the nature of what American taxpayers are subsidizing. And that ought to be the question. Should we be subsidizing undermining home ownership in this country, especially at this time, or should we be supporting it? All right, then I'm going to end on that hopeful note. We've been speaking with Gene Slater. You can find his and Barry Zegas' piece, Stop Subsidizing Wall Street Buying Up Homes, on housingwire.com. Gene Slater, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Sure. Thank you very much. While people struggling with pandemic health impacts, stagnant wages and job losses were then hit with higher prices on many goods, elite news media reported with a kind of wonder, why can't we find baby formula? How does this supply chain work? That ingenuousness didn't help anyone learn what was behind the crisis or how to address it or to prevent it in future. Rakeen Maboud is chief economist and managing director of policy and research at Groundwork Collaborative. We talked with her in February about supply chain breakdowns and particularly the role of workers. 
it's not like prices are rising for no reason. Actually, the root causes here is a system that's really been in the works for the last half a century, right? 50 years of a supply chain, a series of policy decisions that has built a supply chain that was unable to handle shocks like the pandemic. And so when the pandemic hit, what we ended up seeing was massive shifts in demand, but also this extremely brittle system break down under those changes in demand. And so I'm happy to go into that, but eager to hear from you what you found interesting about the piece. Well, let's talk about that brittleness, because I think, you know, when reporters think about news you can use, they're like, hey, prices are up. And so prices are up. That's bad. We're supposed to pick an enemy for that or a cause or a reason. And I don't know that that energy is directed in the right place. So if you could talk about what is it that made the supply chain fragile? What made it brittle in the first place? Sure. So we've essentially spent 50 years handing our supply chain over to mega corporations. So these companies have built a system that works for them, right? It works for padding their own profits, jacking up their profits, all spurred on by Wall Street, who really demanded short-term profit increases over all else. And so when you think about what a supply chain is for, usually most people would think, oh, it's here to deliver goods and services. Well, that's actually not what our supply chain was built to do. Our supply chain was built to really maximize what companies could get out of this and the dividends that they can pay out to shareholders. And what that means is that they've essentially built a system that has no redundancy. It has no sort of flexibility for changes in an economy such as a pandemic or even something like a climate shock, right, which we're unfortunately likely to see more of over the coming years and decades. And so there is what we call sort of a a just-in-time supply system, right? This is a supply system that is expected to deliver exactly the number of goods that are needed and at exactly the moment that they're needed. But with something like a pandemic, all of those predictions about what goods will be needed when go out the window, and that's when you end up with supply shortages. That's what you end up with bottlenecks. The consolidation piece of this is also really important. We have three ocean shipping alliances that carry 80% of the world's cargo. So there, if one of them goes down, that you can see how that sort of massively disrupts our global supply chain. But you can also see how that might jack up prices. So where do workers fit in there? What is the role of the employees that are obviously a piece of this? What does labor policy, Where? what does that do? Yeah, I'm really, really glad you asked that, because I think when people think of the supply chain, they have this sort of vague images of trains and maybe a big ship, right? But those big (laughs) ships and those cranes are operated by people. And I think the effect on workers is made most clear through the example of trucking. About 80% of port truckers are misclassified as independent contractors. That means that they don't get good wages, they don't have predictable hours, they don't get benefits. Some of them can't even use the bathroom at the ports because they're not technically considered employees. And that erosion of labor, we see that throughout, right? We see that on these giant ships that are waiting offshore to unload their goods. There are people on those ships who are not being paid very well. In fact, a lot of these ships fly with what's called flags of convenience, which are the flags of countries that have really, really low labor standards, so they don't have to adhere to higher standards on the ship. So across our supply chains, we basically have incredible reliance on precarious labor. And what that means is that people are being harmed. 
And part of the reason we've ended up in this position of incredible reliance on precarious labor is that companies have tried to profit maximize, right? They don't want to pay those benefits. They don't want to pay good wages. They want to make sure that they can squeeze as much out of a worker as they can with paying them as little as possible. So I'm really glad you asked that question because bad labor practices and our reliance on precarious labor is a real liability in our supply chain as a whole. I have to say, the the story that we get, and I'm not being facetious, the story that we get from the media about capitalism is, you know, that it takes advantage of certain situations, but not that it's cruel, you know, not that when people are sick, you jack up the prices of medicine. Like, I feel like in most people's brains... That's what a horrible person does. You know, that's not what a system does. And yet that is incentivized by certain systems in this country. I'm not sure that people really grok that, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a good example for that, which is in their Q4 2021 earnings call, Johnson & Johnson, which is a pretty familiar brand, I think, to many people, announced that they, were, that they had raised prices on their consumer health products and about 29 of their prescription drugs last year. And on that earnings call, this, the CEO told investors that a strong underlying demand for medical care and all there is to do to, quote, address suffering and death caused by different diseases is part of their company's, quote, optimism and opportunity for its future performance. I mean, this is out in the public, right? This is not said behind a closed door, they're literally celebrating the fact that there's a long way to go before a lot of people are healthy again in how that helps them raise money. Long story short, these mega retailers are just using inflation as a cover to raise prices and, and turn record profits all in the midst of an unprecedented health crisis. And that's not morally acceptable, but it, I think importantly, it's also really, really not good for our economy. Because when you have this much inequality, that is not what makes a healthy economy. A healthy economy is one where workers and consumers and small businesses and smaller players in the market can really have a fighting chance. And that's just not the system we're living in right now. That was Rakeen Maboud of Groundwork Collaborative speaking with Counterspin in February of this year. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. <laughs>